Welcome to the College Commons Podcast, passionate perspectives from Judaism's leading thinkers, brought to you by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, America's first Jewish institution of higher learning. My name is Joshua Holo, Dean of HUC's Jack H. Skirball Campus in Los Angeles, and your host. I'm very excited to welcome you to this episode of the College Commons podcast because we're going to speak with Jordan Reimer, who is currently a policy analyst at RAND in the Defense and Political Sciences Department. He has an MPA from the Woodrow Wilson School at Princeton University, and he studied in Egypt and Yemen. He served as a policymaker at the Department of Defense and was an intelligence analyst at the New York City Police Department. He's also a lecturer and course instructor on such topics as conflict and insurgency in the post-Arab Spring Middle East, radicalization, and political Islam, most recently at New York University. Jordan, it's a pleasure to have you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. I want to start off with um, uh, the perspective of an informed and engaged layperson with respect to the policy and security issues in the Near East, especially in light of the fact that Trump recently withdrew our small forces from, from Syria. But it's a general question I want to ask. It seems to me, in my imagination as a non-expert, that the collective interests of what I'll call the West, U.S., European, and Israeli, we, for the moment we'll call them a block of interests, and you can correct me if that's not appropriate, but it seems that that block of interests uh, now, even more than in the past, uh, trips over itself in the Middle East. So when Trump, for example, leaves Syrian Kurdistan, he helps the Turks, who on the one hand are our, our, our traditional allies, which you would want to help, but he also harms our ability to work with the Kurds in order to fight ISIS. Similarly, for example, Assad is both an enemy to Israel and the United States, but over the years, over the generations really of his family, the Assad family has kept a lid tamping down all kinds of bad actors against us who happen to be in Syria. So it's, it seems like our, our own interests run at cross-currents to one another in highly complicated ways. Is it just that we're aware of that more now, or is that built into any complex political reality in the world and certainly in the Middle East? It's funny. It reminds me of this letter to the editor that came out in a newspaper right in 2013, right when the, uh, the Egyptian military overthrew um, overthrew the Morsi government. And it just laid out the fact, and I, I wish I could have memorized it, but it essentially lays out the fact that the U.S. supports democracy and the Muslim Brotherhood was democratically elected, but the U.S. Um, also supports uh, Saudi Arabia, which is a close ally against Iran, but Saudi Arabia is trying, is supporting the overthrow of the democratically elected government. Uh, and me- meanwhile, and so just the nature of the complex ties between all these different factions, it's inherently complex. Every single actor in the region has multiple interests, and they don't always coincide. U.S. interests don't always coincide with European interests or necessarily Israeli interests. And the way I like to think about it is that there's no absolute villain and no absolute hero in the Middle East, for the most part. I mean, ISIS, I think we could all agree, is an absolute uh, villain. But for the most part, it's just helpful to not think in terms of good guys and bad guys, but for on particular policy issues, who are your allies on this issue and who are your adversaries on this issue, and how do you balance those inherent uh, natures? I think with Turkey right now, you're seeing that exact same thing play out. Not only do uh, we support the Turks as a NATO ally, um, but also, but, and yet we have their concerns with the with their actions over the Kurds. But same thing with with Russia. Turkey has embraced Russia uh, much more closely uh, since the Syrian civil war, or since Russia's entry into the Syrian civil war in 2015. And so now you have Turkey, who's uh, getting uh, air defense systems from Russia. And so now you have a NATO ally using Russian weapons. So that's inherently a complex dynamic. I mean, the dynamics all across the region are inherently complex. And that 
is not just the case today. It was the case in 2013 uh, since the Arab Spring and, and even before that. Yeah, but basically, complex is a polite way of saying Meshuggah. I mean, it's, I mean, it's crazy, the, 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 the cross-currents here. Exactly. The way I like to talk about it is simultaneous and overlapping wars in the Middle East. Uh, I, the way I like to, you try to break it down to its uh, most basic building blocks. And the way I like to think about it is that there are essentially three meta wars, three big wars happening in the Middle East. And from that framing, you could sort of understand where everybody's interests lie. So the first big meta war is the campaign against Iran, or the Sunni-Shia conflict, but you know Israel being on Team Sunni. Uh, where uh, all across the region, the Sunni state, the Gulf states like uh, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates are trying to push back against Iranian uh, interests and Iranian allies. Allow me to interrupt. Uh, including the Arab countries, such as some of the Gulf states and Iraq, that have either significant minorities or even Iraq, I think, has a slight majority of Shia population. Is that is that true? So a number of these countries do have uh, significant Shia populations. I would not include Iraq in that block. Iraq is very deliberately, because it is has such a large Shia and such a large Sunni and such a large Kurdish population, really tries to avoid uh, taking sides in the Sunni-Shia conflict, doesn't, does not want to be the site of U.S.-Iranian hostilities, uh, but it is much more so like um, Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates. Bahrain does have a Shia majority, but it is ruled by a Sunni monarch. Uh, and Saudi Arabia has a large Shia plurality in a oil-rich region, uh, but they are a predominantly Sunni country controlled by a Sunni family. So I've diverted you to the weeds, back to our original point okay, about so these cross-currents and overlaps, but you're trying to give us the meta. So so, so, so the first meta war is Sunni versus Shia. Sunni versus Shia, and that took place in Syria. That's taking place right now in Yemen. Uh, that's taking place directly between the countries themselves in the Gulf, where this past summer you had uh, direct hostile activity from Iran into Saudi Arabia. Um, it's taking place amongst proxy groups in Iraq um, and Syria. Uh, and, and in Bahrain, the, you had the Arab Spring in Bahrain, and the Saudis shut that down very, very quickly because they were afraid of Iran lending support to the popular protests. Um, and then the other big meta war in the Middle East that helps explain a lot of what's going on and what, a lot of what people see is an intra-Sunni conflict, a conflict between amongst the Sunnis themselves, uh, where you have traditionalist powers, again, like Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, who like keeping the pre-Arab Spring status quo, where regimes are in power, um, the governments kind of control the religious uh, atmosphere of the country themselves, versus uh, political Islamists, like the Muslim Brotherhood and their state allies, like Qatar and Turkey, which push for or acknowledge a more grassroots sentiment amongst um, amongst the Arab people uh, for more quote unquote representative or quote unquote democratic government govern, uh, governments, uh, most popularly represented by political movements, political parties represented by the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, and same thing in Turkey, the Turkish government is not a Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, Erdogan's government is not uh, a Muslim Brotherhood party per se, but it is very much aligned with the same political Islamist um, tendencies or ideologies. Uh, and so what you have now, in 2017, you had the embargo against Qatar, which seemed to come out of nowhere by Saudi Arabia and and Bahrain and United Arab Emirates. That was due to Qatar's um, trying to support Muslim Brotherhood, political Islamist uh, elements in, in the region. And so that war is still playing out very hotly in Libya, where you have a would-be strongman uh, trying to take over the whole government. Uh, and then you have uh, Islamist political parties who almost have a, who have a second government or are supporting part of the, a UN-backed internationally recognized government. Uh, and so you have uh, Qatar and Turkey supporting the UN, 
UN-backed government that has uh, political Islamist militias against Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, and Egypt, who are supporting uh, this strongman uh, in this Libyan civil war. So that explains the embargo against Qatar. It explains the civil war in Libya. Um, and then the third big metal war is the war against ISIS, uh, which is so inherently uh, wrapped up in the Syrian civil war that it's almost impossible to distinguish where one starts and one ends for the purpose of regional analysis. Uh, and so uh, trying to understand Saudi Arabia or Turkey's motivation uh, j- just so inherently wraps up in, in, those, in, in that conflict. And so you have the knock-on effects of that war, like Turkey's war against the Kurds, but you also have the Kurdish war uh, against ISIS, but they're also carving out their own interests in Syria. So again, it's, it's really hard to distinguish, but essentially you have those three big wars in the Middle East, the Sunni-Shia conflict, of which the Syrian civil war is a component of, uh, the uh, intra-Sunni conflict, where you have the traditionalists trying to fight against the political Islamists, and then you have the war against ISIS and um, all the other regional effects that result from that, like the Kurdish situation in Syria um, or you know the U.S. campaign. The U.S.'s presence in Syria and Iraq uh, is, is due to the... Uh, it started out as predicated on the fight, to, uh, the fight against ISIS. Oh, to eradicate ISIS. I want to go back to a previous point you you said about I mean it you said it about the Middle East but I think it applies probably to geopolitics writ large which is that it's not analytically helpful to think about angels and demons or heroes and villains correct that um, I'm reading you to say that if you dive into any aggressors motivations you will find you will find some reasonableness in those motivations. That that if someone is aggressive, that they're pr- they're probably aggressive for a reason. That if you boil it down, is a reason that on one level or another, most of us can probably identify with, even if we find ourselves on the opposite side of that conflict. Agreed. Uh, if that's the case, and I heard you right, and since your job is a policy analyst, and since as we were saying before, your job is to present policy makers with with actionable, straightforward analyses that, that can shape their, not only their perspectives, but their decisions. Those policymakers whom you're uh, s- serving by giving them the best, most accurate information you can muster, their stock in trade is often villainization and demonization. In other words... When I say policymaker, I'm, I'm overlapping to some degree with politics. Exactly. That's where I and would push back against policymakers versus politicians. And you think that the politicians rely more heavily on the caricatures than the policymakers? I think that in any democratic government, uh, at some point, the policymakers are the politicians, which is what you want because the politicians are elected by the people uh, and policymakers are largely appointed by those individuals. But the policymakers are appointed because they are subject matter experts uh, in the topic. And the politicians are elected, ideally, because they can translate both what they're hearing from the policymakers, uh, from their hearing from the subject matter experts, and what they know their constituents desire to kind of synthesize to come up with a plan that um, is consistent with our interests that the subject matter experts uh, advocate and consistent with people's uh, in political desires, um, which is where the constituency falls in. So to get to the to the heart of your question, I think that you know politicians might speak in polemics, but policymakers tend or subject matter experts within the policymaking bureaucracy don't speak in polemics. So I get the fact that there's a difference in speech and analysis. I'm worried about the fact when those two things conflict, and I'm worried about our President Trump, for example, who 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 is comfortable reverting to demonizing language, and, and most presidents have been when, when the rubber meets the road. Uh, George W. Bush and Barack Obama also relied heavily on demonizing language with respect to our enemies in the Middle East, 
to achieve their goals vis-a-vis the war in Afghanistan, the war in Iraq for Bush, or for the assassination of uh, Osama bin Laden by Obama. So this isn't a partisan remark on my right. part. It's, a, it's an observation that sometimes, surely, the political tendency, maybe even need to villainize, might cut against what is probably rationally the right thing to do. I would say that the way I think about it is that uh, presidents, senior officials who are might be both politicians and policymakers are given the information by the subject matter experts to say this is the situation as it is. This is as complex in, – in all its complexity, again, boiled down to the two pages, um, but still conveying that nuance. And then the politician – comes up with, okay, well, I understand the cost of what this policy action is going to be, but nevertheless, it is the right policy action for the United States. Um, and then the, pol- the, the decision maker um, then will work with the political communications team to figure out, okay, well, what's the best argument that I could convey to the American people uh, that this course of action is actually the right one? Um, and so that's where, you know, maybe polemical language comes into play. But you like to think that before the polemical language comes into play, they've already considered the nuance of the situation. That's, that's an ideal world, and that's the world that I like to operate in because, again, um, like you said at the beginning, the, all the interest thrives in the, in the nuance. And so and, – and the devil is in the detail. So in order to fully inform a policymaker, and I think that um, – Ideally, we'd like our policymakers to be fully informed. Uh, you have to talk in the details and in the nuance. And then how they do the political communication back to the American people uh, is something that's no longer in the uh, subject in the subject matter experts' uh, hands. I understand why it's it's appropriate for a person of your temperament to want to stop your task where you still can have the integrity of your intellectual and uh, analysis, but I'm worried that um, that politicians maybe legitimately do rely on the villainization, and then it comes back to haunt us when we have to work with the people whom we villainized, or alternatively, to uh, push away from the people whom we've harmonized. You're with. absolutely right. It's actually my first... That you mentioned that my first lesson in geopolitics, and this is going to age me, give away my age... He looks 20, by the way, that's just saying. <laughs> I was, uh, in 1990, I was five years old, and I remember this vividly. And in Time Magazine, they had a, a pullout. Uh, this was right at the beginning of the of Desert, Operation Desert Storm, the first, uh, the Persian Gulf War. There was a pullout of a map of where the U.S. forces were being stationed outside of Iraq and where Iraqi forces were stationed to face off against U.S. Uh, US uh, soldiers. And the map in Time magazine mentioned what weapon systems the U.S. had and what weapon systems the Iraqis had and what was the provenance of those weapons. So all the, all the U.S. weapons were naturally U.S. made. But the Iraqis had, you know, Chinese, presumably Chinese-made weapons, certainly Soviet-made weapons, and they also had American-made weapons. And I remember asking my father, again, five years old, I said, how does Saddam Hussein, the most evil person on the world, have U.S. weapons? And he said, oh, well, just a few years ago, he was a U.S. ally, and we were providing him weapons when he was fighting a war against a different country, namely Iran. And that, to me, was the craziest notion in the world that this guy who was demonized as the most evil person on the planet in 1990 was an ally or the U.S. supported him just a few years earlier. And and maybe I'm retconning here to use a pop culture term, but um, that, to me, is when I first fell in love with, uh, with geopolitics and the nuance and complexity of geopolitics and what made it so interesting. I certainly have an interest, as does the Jewish community in Israel. And Israel has a reputation for some, uh, I guess we could call it existential practicality, that they'll, they'll deal with whomever they have to deal with in order to survive and to, and to get what they need. So most of us remember when uh, Israel was working with Jordan behind the scenes long before they had any 
official peace with Jordan. Yes. And that was an open secret um, in, in society. Right. Um, it begs the question, though, what do you learn when you look at Israeli interests in light of the fact that they have all this, these, these multiple layers because they're in it, they're in it more than any other Western country, arguably with the exception of Turkey, but they have, um, they just have a, a, a unique set of stakes and a unique set of interests, um, and they seem to play themselves out in um, rather interesting and complicated ways. So, how do how should we understand Israel in this complicated map of the meta wars, Sunni versus Shia? Uh, democratic Islamist Sunni versus traditional regime Sunni and the Syrian civil war? So Israel, you know, you're absolutely right. Israel does have to work with unsavory characters and works with people under the radar below the scenes. But Israel has actually been very open about its policy in the past few years. Uh, With regards to the metal wars, uh, Israel has gone all in on Team Saudi Arabia Emirates. Uh, so it is all in on Team Sunni against uh, the Shia, against Iran, and it is all in on Team Traditionalist against political Islamists. It has a very close relationship with President Sisi in Egypt. Uh, it does have, like you were saying, an under-the-table relationship with Qatar, Uh, which funds activities in Gaza to help keep Gaza stable. But nevertheless, it is very much uh, aligning itself with with Saudi Arabia and the Emirates in their uh, war against uh, political Islam. They were very happy when Sisi overthrew the democratically elected government of uh, President Morsi in, in Egypt. Um, with regard to the meta wars and with regard with regard to the war against ISIS and the uh, war in Syria, Israel's actually been not so involved in the war against ISIS, uh, other than the fact that it has good intelligence capabilities all throughout the region. Um, you know, ISIS, for all of its rhetoric that we're going to liberate Jerusalem, like any good jihadi organization, they have to claim that they're going to liberate Jerusalem. Uh, Israel, uh, ISIS remarkably held off against uh, targeting Israel. I guess it had its own uh, top-line priorities Priorities. before it can get to killing the Jews. Uh, So Israel was not very involved, uh, certainly certainly not in any open way in the war against ISIS, again, maybe in terms of some intelligence capabilities. Um, And then in the war in Syria, it's also pursued its interests very, very Carefully, uh, where it had a top line, and again, very much in the Sunni-Shia conflict on Team Sunni against Iran, where it did not want any Iranian arms transfers to Syria, and it did not want any establishment of Iranian or Syrian terror group presence along the Israel-Syria border. Hezbollah, basically. Uh, Hezbollah and and a few other, and and the IRGC, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, um, and its Quds Force, its external they, Do arm. they export them to... There are a number of IRGC, Iranian Revolutionary Guard generals, uh, operating in Syria to help direct militias. Uh, and for a while, they actually set up... Israel actually killed an Iranian general, um, and there was an exchange of fire afterwards, but essentially they, they let it go because they didn't want it to get out of hand. But yes, Iran has tried to set up uh, cells uh, of its own uh, uh, senior officers on the Israeli border that Israel has pushed back against. Um, but it really didn't try to get involved in the day-to-day of the Syrian civil war. It provided some humanitarian relief to wounded fighters, uh, nominally helped support some uh, local Druze fighters, uh, but in a very local way. They really didn't try to get involved. They really tried to stick with their own predominant interests, which is pushing back against Keep Iran. Keep the border. And, and, right. Exactly. Um, but with regard to Israel needing to deal with some unsavory characters uh, surreptitiously, I think what's really interesting is where Israel has to deal with Russia in Syria in a way that the U.S. wishes it didn't have to or that the U.S. wishes the U.S. didn't have to, whereas the U.S. is very frustrated at Russia's resurgence in the Middle East and their new power broker status in Syria, it almost comes as a sort of salve to Israel. Israel has a very good relationship with Russia, uh, 
uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu has a good relationship with President Putin. They meet frequently. And Russia understands Israel's interest in Syria, namely pushing back against Iran or any anti-Israel terror group, uh, and allows it to operate uh, in a way that uh, is consistent with Israel's interests. And it's it's not a moderate – Russia is not a moderating force in Syria for Israel's interests, but at least it's an open ear in a way that if Russia were not there, things could spiral much more out of control. The fact that Russia has a good talking relationship with both Israel and Iran and Assad helps maybe keep things from toning down, keeps the um, – political communication, as it were, from instead of being hostile, uh, communicating via shooting at each other, maybe this provides an intermediary of communicating. A channel of sorts. Exactly, exactly. Is it accurate to say that Israel's engagement with one of the metaphors, namely Sunni versus Shia, is it accurate to say that from Israel's perspective, that basically means dealing with Hamas and Hezbollah? No. So by Israel push... On Team Sunni uh, in the Sunni-Shia conflict, it helps provide a regional coalition against Hezbollah. Hezbollah is a Shia group that's aligned with Iran. And so Israel, for the first time, now has regional allies in helping push back against Hezbollah's presence, um, which has been a boon to Israel. Uh, Hamas is actually a very interesting uh, sticky wicket, as it were, because Hamas is a a Sunni group that has its origins in the Muslim Brotherhood. It is the, quote-unquote, the Muslim, or was the Muslim Brotherhood affiliate in Palestine, the Palestinian territories. Uh, it views itself, it viewed itself as the Muslim Brotherhood affiliate in Palestine. Um, it has interestingly distanced itself from the Muslim Brotherhood, given this regional war against the Muslim Brotherhood. But it also distanced itself from Iran at the beginning of the Syrian civil war because the region was divided, was dividing itself into Team Sunni or Team Shia. Hamas, which was a Sunni group but receiving weapons and aid from Shia Iran, had to make a choice. And it did make a choice, and it chose Team Sunni. Uh, it pulled itself out of uh, Syria, where it had, where its leadership had a home, uh, and it stopped talking in favor of the Assad regime. Uh, however, because simultaneously in these meta wars, you had this war within the Sunni world of uh, the traditionalists against the Islamists, Hamas found itself doubly isolated, having isolated itself from the Shia camp, it then was isolated from the Sunni camp because it still was affiliated with the Muslim Brotherhood. Only now, after several years where the, um, after it formally distanced itself from the Muslim Brotherhood and from its charter dropped its official affiliation, although it didn't really change its ideology, it still hews to a political Islamist ideology. Um, only years later, uh, as the world has really stopped paying attention to the Syrian civil war in terms of the Sunni-Shia conflict, has Iran been able to reestablish links with Hamas? And after Hamas finding itself so isolated, it is happy to reestablish links. The Syrian civil war, as I mentioned, started out as, started out as a popular uh, uprising and then quickly became part of the Sunni-Shia war. But right now, you don't hear a lot about Saudi or um, Emirati or Gulf support to the Shia rebels, it's the Sunni rebels. It's mostly about uh, Turkey, Iran, Syria, Russia, U.S. It's become a much more uh, internationalized conflict. Uh, and the rebels have become such a shell of their former selves that their only real backer is Turkey, and it's and it doesn't really fall into the Sunni-Shia conflict as much. Before we return to the podcast, we want to let you know about digital learning on the College Commons platform. Beyond this podcast, which is available to the public at large, check out the online courses at collegecommons.huc.edu for in-depth learning, digital syllabi, assignments, inspiration for teaching, and one of our most influential courses called Making Prayer Real. Subscribe with your synagogue for all this and more. Just click sign up at collegecommons.huc.edu. Oh, and one more thing. Help us out and rate us on iTunes. But whatever you do, do not give us five stars, unless we deserve it. Now, back to our podcast. 
So I'd like you to take a step back from your purely analytical role uh, and speak as a, a Jew in America, a person who experiences the communal conversations that we have, and reflect on what you think American Jews, when we talk about, when we think about Israel, the Middle East, what are we missing? What's a key ingredient that that we're not talking about? Or alternatively, or additionally, what are we misunderstanding? So I think the best way to relate to it, like you said, is to relate to it myself personally. And uh, I remember when I was growing up, went to Jewish day school, uh, and I remember, you know, it was the time of the Intifada when I was in high school, and I remember always hearing about Hamas and Hezbollah, Hamas and Hezbollah. The terrorist groups uh, wanted to destroy Israel. But I never learned about them with any degree of detail, and they were never taught with them about any degree of detail. It took me till college before I learned that Hamas was a Palestinian group, a Sunni group with roots in the Muslim Brotherhood, whereas Hezbollah was a Lebanese Shia group uh, that re- that started with Israel's invasion of Lebanon in 1982. Um, so understanding that there are differences and uh, between the different enemies of Israel, and instead of just categorizing everybody as terrorists, but actually understanding what their individual motivations are, their individual origins are, who their networks of support are, I think then gives you the tools to then analyze, okay, well, how do we combat them? How do we push back against them? Oh, Hezbollah um, takes uh, Hezbollah is a political party in Lebanon. Okay, well, what factions in Lebanon can we support against Hezbollah, where it can then be marginalized in the country itself? Uh, right? We, as Israel learned in two thousand six, fighting a shooting war with Hezbollah isn't necessarily going to destroy the movement, but. But possibly, and as we see right now in Lebanon, as we speak right now, there are protests in Lebanon against all of Lebanon's leaders. Um, Possibly through domestic Lebanese politics, you can marginalize Hezbollah in a way that maybe the Lebanese wake up and say, hey, maybe we shouldn't have an armed militia in our country. Maybe uh, in any country where the government is, a political scientist would say, uh, government is a government because it has a monopoly on legitimate forms of violence. Uh, maybe only the Lebanese armed forces should have uh, weapons and should be the uh, monopoly of legitimate use of forces. Uh, similarly, uh, with Hamas... When in 2006, a little bit later on, when uh, when Hamas won uh, political elections uh, against Fatah, I think that the American Jewish community was tremendously concerned, and even the Bush administration was tremendously concerned. Oh my God, this uh, violent, this terrorist political Islamist group won an election. How awful is a terrorist group about to become the politically elected legitimate leader? Um, whereas if you understand the problem in context, where you have to put yourself in the shoes of the average Palestinian in 2006, and they said, okay, well, I could vote for Fatah, who has been controlling the, the PLO, the Palestinian uh, Authority, for decades and is thoroughly corrupt, or I could vote for this alternative, which, due to their more religious influences, uh, views themselves and holds themselves to a higher non-incorruptible standard. Maybe instead of voting for the corrupt people, I'll vote for the incorrupt people. Um, and I'm not saying that everybody voted for that based on that dialectic, but that seemed to be, you know, according to public opinion polls, that seemed to be the real indicator that they were trying to vote out of office their corrupt leaders. And meanwhile, uh, so many, so much of the American Jewish community uh, talks about, well, the corrupt leaders of the Palestinians have no popular mandate. So maybe this was an opportunity to uh, recognize that fact and to try to bring uh, Hamas as a responsible stakeholder um, you then had the the civil war where the factions broke up, so you didn't really have an opportunity to um, to cultivate that. And I'm not saying that it would have necessarily succeeded, but the but the fear that was inspired by Hamas taking office uh, is one that missed the nuance and the context of why they were elected. And you might say, well, it doesn't matter why they were elected because they're a terrorist group; they would have been in power. But to me, I would argue, well, you have to look at the average Palestinian who voted for them. Why were they voting for them? Was it because they wanted to destroy Israel or was it for their own domestic political needs? And, you know, much like American voters, you can't get them to think about foreign policy when they vote. They think about their own domestic needs, the economy, education, health care. 
maybe that's the, the same holds true for uh, the Palestinians who think more in terms of domestic issues than "quote unquote" foreign policy issues of which the of which Israel would would uh, constitute. Is there something about the Israel security question writ large that you you know you 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 have conversations around a Shabbos table or with friends who happen to be Jewish and is there something that you just like guys we're not paying attention to this? I think the problem becomes when your whole regional outlook or your whole foreign policy outlook or your whole regional outlook is focused on one specific problem. Uh, that's a pinhole where you're missing the whole picture. And there, that's when you're caught by surprise of why did Hamas win or, you know, um, how do we push back against Hezbollah? Um, when you're only looking, when you're missing the complete picture, you're inherently misunderstanding the situation. And so if you... You know, wanting Israel's security to be is your predominant foreign policy choice is certainly an understandable foreign policy choice for the American Jewish community. Um, but the question becomes, what is the full picture? What is every actor, every stakeholder uh, that affects Israel's security? What are their full foreign policy considerations? Not they're not just thinking about in terms of Israel. So for us to just think in terms of Israel when evaluating the actions of the other actors in the region is inherently going to miss something. So when you were at NYPD, yeah, in the wake of nine eleven, given your age, yes, <laughs> yes, um, how much of your work was intended to be analytical, taking a snapshot of reality and then analyzing it, versus predictive? where you were, you know, putting your expertise on the line to say what you think would happen. So at the NYPD, you were engaged in both tactical analysis and strategic analysis. So tactical analysis revolved around ongoing investigations into individuals who were potentially going to commit terrorist attacks or provide support to terrorist groups um, in the New York area. And so from a very tactical perspective, it was... What are these people doing? How do we thwart them? Uh, what do we need to do to make sure that either they're not really doing what we fear they might be doing or stop them if they really are doing it? And then the second component was the strategic perspective and looking at the different regions around the world, different terrorist trends. And uh, I was on the Middle East team, so I very much looked at what was happening around the Middle East, in particular what was happening in Syria, to try to figure out, okay, well, what groups are emerging and where are people traveling to and what groups are they joining when they travel there. Uh, predictive insofar as it didn't cross the threshold of everybody knowing about it or taking notice, but there were a few hints of a phenomenon that you could then tease out and say, oh, you know what, this is going to be a phenomenon that we need to watch very closely. So in 2013, I had just arrived at the NYPD, there were stories of like two or three foreign fighters of Americans who were fighting in Syria. Uh, with mostly with groups like Jabhat al-Nusra, which was the al-Qaeda affiliate at the time. And the NYPD leadership said, you know what, this is going to be a phenomenon. There are going to be more people traveling to Syria. And ISIS had only just announced itself about a month before. It, they had not really committed any terrorist attacks uh, or any spectacular terrorist attacks other than the fact that they were uh, belligerent in um, in Iraq and Syria. They were committing terrorist attacks in Iraq, but they weren't as externally focused. Um so th that was a trend. That, okay, well, foreign fighters is going to be an issue. And at the time, foreign fighters was an issue both to the al-Qaeda affiliate and to the ISIS affiliate. And then as ISIS became more and more powerful, everybody more or less just shifted over to ISIS. But teasing out those trends, you know, other, other trends was teasing out the white supremacy trends and trying to think about, okay, well, is white supremacy actually going to be a phenomenon that's going to affect the security of the terrorist landscape of New York City? Let's get ahead of that. To me, it's about talking about what's happening right now and then what are the kernels of uh, information that indicate that a future trend and trying to get ahead of that trend and briefing the bosses, uh, as we said, uh, about p potential future trends and what we need to do right now in order to uh, prepare ourselves for those trends. Does NYPD's um, anti-terrorist infrastructure far outstrip any other American cities in terms of size and budgetary commitment? I would say that that's true. The NYPD uh, has its own apparatus uh, as part of the intelligence bureau that is dedicated to terrorism cases, and they also have dedicated over 100 officers to helping the FBI and their Joint Terrorism Task Force. Most other uh, 
um, law enforcement agencies uh, around the country just dedicate officers to the Joint Terrorism Task Force that are, that's led by the FBI as part of an interagency process in different cities across the country. The NYPD does that but also maintains a parallel uh, organization. Uh, they also dedicate more officers to the JTTF, to this Joint Terrorism Task Force, than any other police department. So not only are they working with the FBI closer than any other uh, law enforcement, but they also have an entirely parallel apparatus that works with the FBI, but is its own stand-up unit. It's quite a, it's quite a commitment. And they have officers in cities all, all over the world that provide this network of local law enforcement agencies that, uh, that they're able to work with and um, share information as needed. So um, one tends to think of one's own time as the most chaotic, most dangerous, most extreme, whatever. Right. And, and that's natural enough, but you have an analytical perspective of some stretch of history into the recent past to today. So I'd like you to kind of rate the complexity and the chaos and the violence in the Middle East today as compared to previous iterations that you have expert experience with. I think that there's been a number of uh, term, uh, periods of turmoil in the Middle East. You had the uh, Arab Cold War in the 1950s, where you had Egypt fighting what people call its own Vietnam and Yemen. You had uh, the Iran-Iraq War. Um, you have a lot of periods of turmoil. Uh, I think, to me, the Arab Spring was an inflection point uh, where for the first time you had real democratic uprisings in the region. Uh, and that, uh, the turmoil that resulted from those uprisings, and they didn't always turn out democratic, uh, Tunisia is still limping along in a, in, with, a, with a very fragile democracy. Um, the region today is still feeling the after effects of the Arab Spring. We tend to think of the Arab Spring maybe as, well, that was a phenomenon that ended. But the Syrian civil war resulted from the Arab Spring. The war in Yemen was a direct outgrowth of the, of the Arab Spring. The conflict in Libya was a direct outgrowth from the uh, Arab Spring. Uh, and so right now, today, uh, as we speak uh, in November 2019, uh, we have another period of massive, massive turmoil where it's been even more hectic than a few months ago or even uh, a year or two ago, right? The wars of, you know, yesterday we were concerned about the Yemen civil war, the Libyan civil war, uh, but uh, those are still ongoing, but we have even more. This past summer, there was a lot of concern about Iran attacking uh, the Gulf, uh, Gulf shipping and Gulf oil infrastructure. We don't talk about that anymore. Just a few months later, we nearly went to war against Iran, and no one talks about that. We, over this past year, we've had uh, democratic or transitions, political transitions in Algeria and Sudan an Arab Spring 2.0 that people aren't really talking about. Uh, in the Yemen civil war, when the United Arab Emirates pulled out this past summer, that led to a, an intra-civil war, a civil war within a civil war, where one of the factions uh, fought against itself. And these are all the conflicts that we're not talking about because we're talking about the conflicts of today. Uh, and today you have Turkey's war against the Kurds in Syria and trying to figure out the ceasefire dynamics of that. You have the death of al-Baghdadi and his deputy. Um, you have ongoing protests in Lebanon, which led to the official resignation of the prime minister. You have protests in Iraq, where the prime minister has indicated that he'd be willing to step down in a constitutional process. You have pro protests in Egypt for the first time since 2013. So, you know, as we speak today, the region once again seems to be uh, in, in turmoil. For, for various different in, uh, in, endogenous reasons, not necessarily, there's no necessarily a grand cohere, a coherent narrative of why this is happening. Right. The meta, the meta wars make a lot of sense out of a situation, but fundamentally, there are wheels within wheels all the time. Exactly. The way I like to think about it is that the meta wars are top down. That's the state's uh, imposing themselves on local players. So you have Turkey imposing itself on the Kurds. You have the Emirates and Saudi Arabia uh, fighting uh, Yemeni proxies in in Yemen or or um, 
in Yemen predominantly today. Uh, whereas right now, these protests seem to be a bottom up, where you have protests in Egypt against the regime, protests in Iraq uh, against the government, protests in Lebanon against the government. So you have the, both these top down and bottom up Which forces. is why you use the term Arab Spring 2.0? Uh, well, well, certainly. Well, it's actually very interesting that you say that. So the Arab Spring 2.0, I said with regard to Algeria and Sudan, which were um, authoritarian governments um, that were over that were overthrown or in, put into political transition due to mass popular protests. What I call what's happening today uh, in Lebanon and Iraq, I would actually call the bizarro Arab Spring. Um, so whereas before the Arab Spring, and again in Algeria and Sudan earlier this year, you have uh, authoritarian governments that don't allow political expression uh, or representative government. The only way to indicate to the government that, hey, I have a problem with the way you're governing things, the way you're running things, is through mass protest, uh, uh, ideally nonviolent protest. Um, but what you have in Lebanon and Iraq are actually uh, nominally, and not just nominally, but f- uh, fairly representative governments, right? Iraq holds free and fair elections. Uh, Lebanon holds free and fair elections, albeit in a confessional sectarian system. But right now, it's almost as if the protesters are taking the lessons learned from the Arab Spring of saying we need mass uh, protests to overthrow our leaders. Um, and in, while, in fact, they're trying to overthrow democratically elected leaders, and yes, there might be a lot of uh, discontent with the way they're running things or the, uh, the inefficient way that they're running things or the corrupt way that they're running things, but I would say that they need to be, be, be careful of what they wish for to overthrow governments in an extra-constitutional process, uh, especially representative governments, is asking for would-be populist dictators to take control. And to say, the elite, the, the elite are corrupt, let me represent your interests. And that's exactly what happened in Egypt in 2013, where you had the, the military step in and say, you know what, we're going to take over. We heard the voice of the people, we're on the side of the people, and we're going to overthrow this government because they're corrupt and not representing the people. Uh, and now you have President Sisi, who is just as much a dictator as Hosni Mubarak was. Uh, in Lebanon, there's less of a fear of that. The military is not particularly a powerful institution. But Iraq, you never know if a military leader could step forward uh, and, and take over. Um, so it's, a, it's almost a situation of be careful what you wish for. Ideal, rep- political expression uh, is very important, even in, in, especially in a democracy. We have protests in the United States all the time. But trying to overthrow a government via extra-constitutional means is not an ideal recipe. You would like to ideally work through more representative constitutional means to do so. I think a a Western-oriented, maybe at the risk of being chauvinist Western-oriented, analytical approach to that phenomenon would be to say that these countries don't really value constitutional democracy in the first place and that therefore the bulk of the people even when they have a cycle or two of free and fair elections, at the end of the day, they don't really put stock in the constitutional idea. They'll put stock in elections as long as they serve their interests, but, but they will not um, sideline their interests for the sake of a greater constitutional commitment, especially when it's only conceptual and not particularly useful to them because they're not really constitutionally democratic societies. And so, so while you may be right in saying that, sure, they're shooting themselves in the foot and they, might, they should be careful what they wish for, it's on a canvas of, with lots of holes in it anyway. <laughs> um, what I would say is, rather than talk about a monolithic they, I would talk about it in terms of what's happening in Lebanon and in Iraq right now. You have... The people protesting against the government. And the people are demonstrating their, um, their uh, frustration with the government. And um, they are not calling for uh, dictatorship. They're calling for their interests to be represented, uh, granted possibly via extra-constitutional means. Um, and that's where I'm saying they need to 
beware of what they wish for. Uh, but the but then you talk about like the elite, the the government themselves. Iraq has a real politics, and maybe we don't focus on it enough. But you know there was coalition building. You know everyone talks about Bibi Netanyahu trying to get to sixty one to build a coalition. Iraq had to build a coalition. The prime minister is a. Um, was a dark horse uh, candidate that was agreed upon, uh, you know, uh, by two main factions who won the Iraqi elections, and they, the prime minister is not from either of their was not from either of their party leaderships, but became a a more technocratic uh, prime minister because he was the agreed upon the the uh, the concession candidate. Um, Iraq does have a real politics, and I think it is in the U.S. interest to cultivate that politics because, you know, maybe I am being a Western chauvinist, but the best way to have representational government or the best way to have stable government is through representational government, reflecting the will of the people. That is the way to have the most stable government. Uh, There's this popular notion that isn't always true, that democracies don't go to war with each other, but the the ability of more governments to be uh, representative of their people, the, the greater that a government, any given government is representative of their people, is uh, a long-term, is a recipe for long-term stability and ideally is in the U.S.'s long-term interest. So we need to be cultivating uh, representational government uh, in Iraq and in Lebanon um, if, for instance, you know, in Lebanon they want to get rid of the confessional system, which has a real problem, uh, you, you need to ensure that it is still a representational uh, system. And again, be careful what you wish for. The reason that it is a confessional system in Lebanon is because it was the only way to get out of a 15-year civil war. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know... Um, it was like Churchill said that democracy is the worst form of government except for any other government. Consociational democracy, to use a fancy term, uh, a sectarian democracy where things are inherently brought up, uh, divided into different sects is the uh, worst form of democracy possible except for the alternative. The alternative is, you know, game theory. Don't think of it as the alternative as being, oh, you know, standard majoritarian uh, democracy. The alternative to sectarian um, democracy is chaos and and civil war. And so consociational democracy, for all its faults, is at least preventing civil war from breaking out. The problem is that you then have this, uh, it has its own knock-on effects of freezing confessional politics, sectarian politics, uh, where you just can't break out of that. Right. No, you can't. You can't become a, a citizen too quickly. Exactly. You have to belong to a faction, right. a Sunni, Shia, or Maronite Christian faction, or Druze faction. Well, Jordan Reimer, thank you very much for the time. It was really a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for having me. This was uh, so much fun. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the College Commons Podcast, available wherever you listen to your podcasts, or at the College Commons website collegecommons.huc.edu, where you can also stay tuned for future episodes.